Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Morning, and thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We have kind of a special show today. This is the show where we always tackle some pretty difficult topics, and uh, we have a very comprehensive topic today to talk about, and uh, it is about how we can end domestic violence. How can we eliminate this? Um, and uh, we have a guest who uh, is going to share with us a plan that he advocates called the Quincy Solution. Our uh, visitor is Barry Goldstein, very well recognized nationally as a domestic violence author, speaker, and an advocate. And uh, he has uh, written some pretty impressive books, and he has dedicated pretty much his whole life into uh, to uh, helping uh, solve our problems of domestic violence. Welcome, Barry. Glad to be here, Heather. Good, good. Thank you for joining us. I must say this is your second visit with us, and I am very appreciative because uh, you have the your you have your eye on the ball and you have your information uh, up to the minute. So. Why do we, you know, I mean, this seems like an obvious question, but it's a place to, to jump off from. Why do we need to eliminate domestic violence? You know, so, it's you not know, that big of a problem, is it? There's really interesting research that came out, um, not that it came out recently, but it's been applied more recently, called the ACE studies, which is Adverse Childhood um, Experiences. And what it shows is that children exposed to domestic violence and child abuse will suffer more illnesses and injuries throughout their lives and will have shorter lives. Um, That seems to me a pretty good reason to prevent it. And if we think about it, domestic violence is really at the center of the problem because the purpose of domestic violence is men use these tactics to scare and intimidate their partners to do what he wants. You know, and that's based, of course, on a long history of husbands being entitled to control and abuse their partners. Mm-hmm. And so it is, what the ACE study says is that the fear caused by domestic violence tactics, and the same is true about child abuse, um, is what causes a lot of really serious diseases, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, stroke, AIDS, mental illness. So it really has a really major impact um, on our society. And we know that men who abuse their partners are 40 to 60% more likely to also abuse their children um, so that children in a home where a father is abusing the mother are at great risk. And we have an opportunity now that we understand both the enormous harm and the ability to change that, that we can dramatically reduce 
stresses, social problems um, in this society, reduce crime, and in doing so, we're going to make everybody healthier and safer and wealthier. And we'll, we'll also talk about the financial benefits, which may encourage people who normally are not involved in domestic violence and child abuse um, issues to become involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think what you were saying about if we can eliminate domestic violence, we've actually hit on a much larger problem, as if that's not large enough. Um, but the whole idea of control and privilege and uh, doing whatever you want to to ensure that you have that control and privilege um, pretty much speaks to a, a great deal of crime and violence in our country, not uh, not just domestic violence. Um, but certainly domestic violence is, is a huge enough problem on its own. If you'd like to join our conversation, and I hope you do, our phone number six four six three seven eight zero four three zero six four six three seven eight zero four three zero. We'd like you to join us in this conversation. So, Barry, we've talked about um, the extent of this problem and why we should, you know, besides the obvious, want to eliminate this problem. Um, Why haven't we? It's been hundreds of years and certainly decades since we've acknowledged that that this is something to be eliminated. Why hasn't anything we've done worked so far? Um, you know, I, I think we need to understand that 30, 40 years ago when we started uh, to respond to domestic violence, treating it as a public issue, we had no research. And so professionals developed practices based on popular assumptions, assumptions that often thought that domestic violence was caused by mental illness or substance abuse. And so they developed responses that have not been that effective. And because domestic violence has been with us for thousands of years, many people have thought that there's nothing we can do about it or we can only sort of reduce it on the edges. And um, I started by comparing the practices adopted in Quincy, Massachusetts, which dramatically reduced domestic violence, crime, and especially homicides, with the practices in Poughkeepsie, New York, where they were using a really pro-abuser practice, um, and it led to a series of domestic violence homicides, and the community was able to learn from that and try to change some of their mistakes. And when you say Barry, when you say pro-abuser tactics, can you be a little bit more specific about that? What does that mean? Um, well, we know that there, there's an or organizations, they like to call themselves fathers' rights groups, but their actual agenda is to undermine domestic violence laws, to stop uh, child support, and in some extreme cases to allow sex between adults and children. Now, of course, they don't speak as directly about what their mission is, at least publicly, so often we don't know, you know, the legislators and the media don't know that, but that's the real agenda. And yes. in Poughkeepsie, um, they have been able to uh, very much influence the family courts 
so that the courts were routinely giving custody to dangerous abusers and often taking the most wonderful, safe, good mothers out of the children's lives. And a county legislative committee was appointed to investigate the response, and they found that in Dutchess County, women either never went to court or stopped going to court because they found that dealing with their abuser, getting help from the judge, made their situation even less safe. So they attempted to deal with their abuser alone, and some of the women didn't survive that decision. So we saw that where you have courts that are very sympathetic to a a father's rights perspective, that it really makes women and children much less safe and and literally leads to the death of all too many women and children. Yeah. And there's been very little um, information out there about this in the general public. Uh, I think the general public seems to believe that courts are where you go for justice, and so bad guys won't get justice, bad guys won't get what they want. And that's not the case, you know, uh, Courts are about laws, not justice. And if the two are uh, coincidentally the same, yippee skippy. But um, courts are where you go to to to. Uh, they have to do with laws, not necessarily justice. And so I think the general public is really not aware of how frequently um, fathers who abuse do get custody. Um, right. So I mm-hmm. think this is a huge problem. And if the Quincy solution can help with that, you know, I mean, I'm I'm all for it. So, what? How exactly can the Quincy solution change that um, that particular issue about uh, uh, bad guys getting custody? Well, I- interestingly, in Quincy, uh, District Attorney Bill Delahunt noticed that when uh, what happened was periodically victims stopped cooperating um, with the prosecution. And it usually happened when the abuser went after custody. Um, Mm -hmm. That did not derail the success in Quincy, because at the time that was a rare tactic. Today it's a standard abuser tactic to seek custody as a way to regain control over their victim after she leaves or complains about his um, abuse. And so... You know, we are certainly sharing information with the courts because the courts could use the new research to create reforms that would better protect women and children, but we realize that they are very defensive about their mistakes, and so we think we need legislation. And the legislation we're proposing is the Safe Child Act, and it says something very simple that most of the legislators we've talked to are surprised isn't the law already. What we're saying is that when um, the court decides custody or visitation, the first priority must be the health and safety of children. And that sounds obvious, so we think we can get a lot of support for that, but it would change everything because it would require that we focus on issues like domestic violence and child abuse that have a critical impact on children's lives instead of a variety of less important issues that courts often focus on. 
Um, it would also require that we use genuine experts. And as we were talking about before the show, um, the courts developed a practice of seeking assistance of psychologists and psychiatrists who are experts in psychology and mental illness, which is helpful in some cases. But it's, they're not experts in domestic violence. And getting a few workshops in addition to their psychology background doesn't make them experts. They need right. expertise with domestic violence uh, advocates or other experts. And the Safe Child Act would encourage them to use genuine experts. Yeah. And to, uh, that would uh, consequently also involve uh, training, you know, schools, schools of psychology, schools of um, law schools would have to address the issue um, of child safety first. And, um, uh, you know, I, 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 for one, would be extremely welcome um, welcoming of that particular issue because right now i think that and you know i'm a layperson barry you're you are an attorney um but it seems to me that the family courts tend to operate under three basic assumptions one is that a father has a right to his children one is that children benefit um from a relationship with their father and the other one is that women yes and yeah, i think that's all of that is true. Yeah, and and it seems like that is so embedded in the thoughts of any attorney or um, um, uh, judges that I've ever spoken with. Um, maybe I can relate this particular situation. I had a judge on the show a while back, and um, I, in speaking with, with that judge, I said, how can a judge award custody to a father with domestic documented domestic violence in the in his background because there has been research that shows that you know that fathers with documented domestic violence in their in their their uh, past do get custody and quite frequently and the response from the judge was well there are two people in front of you one is frazzled and can't even keep her own life together and the other one is um obviously in control and has his his uh, stuff together and so who's going to be the better one to make sure that uh, these children have uh, uh, stable lives so if the domestic violence isn't that bad we will award custody to the father and, and you know, there's, there's two areas of research that have come out fairly recently that really speak to this and I'm hoping can be used to really fundamentally change the family court response. One is the Saunders study. And the key, one of the key findings was that psychologists, judges, lawyers, who do not have the specific training that they need, tend to focus on the myth that women make frequent false allegations of abuse. In reality, Women, mothers do make false allegations, but it's less than two percent of the time. So when and it's you about get a, the same. Um, it's about the same as as men make false allegations. No, actually, that's not true. Um, oh, really? Because I, I read the, a study that that indicated that. So, well, let me well let me be a little more specific. I'm referencing a study by Nicholas Bauer, and that study was limited to. Um, contested custody cases. 
-hmm. in contested custody, as I said, mothers make deliberately false allegations less than 2% of the time. Fathers make false allegations 16 times more than mothers. And I want to be fair because that doesn't mean that women are 16 times more honest than men. This is referring specifically to contested custody. And contested custody is overwhelmingly domestic violence cases with the worst abusers. These are men who believe she has no right to leave so that they are entitled to do anything they have to to regain control. And it's that population that so frequently makes false allegations. What study is that? that you? That... It's, an, it's a study by Nicholas Bala, and what he really did was he, he reviewed, I believe, dozens of other studies, and that was the finding. And that's really um, the study about um, true and false allegations in custody court setting, and it was one that the Saunders study from the U.S. Department of Justice focused on extensively. Okay. Um, I'm going to look those up because that uh, that supports a lot of the, the conversations that I have uh, in this field. So thank you for that, Barry. Okay, so we've got um, courts uh, that tend to um, – operate on something other than the principle that um, sometimes there are men who are abusive and shouldn't have custody. Am I summing that up correctly? Yes, and the other side of what I was saying was the ACE research demonstrates just how critical it is for children to be protected from abusers. And one of the things about ACE is it's not just physical abuse. What places children at risk is the fear that is engendered by a variety of illegal and legal tactics that abusers use to control their partners and also in terms of the abuse of children. And it can be emotional abuse just as it can be physical abuse, which is really important because, as you know, the courts tend to only focus on um, physical abuse and tend to focus on recent physical abuse. But what the ACE study says is that the negative impact on children's health is not limited that way, that any type of abuse that creates fear and stress is exactly what puts children at risk for more illnesses and injuries throughout their lives, for shorter life expectancies. And what I think is particularly critical about the ACE study and custody is that when a court gets a case in which there are credible concerns about the father's abuse, we may be able to prevent the child from suffering all of the long-term harm that they're at risk for because of domestic violence and child abuse. But in order to do that, we need two things. The child needs to get therapy and medical treatment, 
and therefore it's really important that the safe parent be the one making medical decisions, and there has to be no further abuse. Because what the ACE study says is that adverse childhood experiences are cumulative. So when you've experienced some types of abuse or some abuse, if you experience more, it multiplies the harm exponentially. So it's really important that the court make sure a child is not exposed to further abuse. So as you were saying before, when the court sends the child for custody or unprotected visitation with an abuser, even if that abuser never abuses the mother again, he's going to be in other relationships and his belief system doesn't change. So he's going to abuse future partners. And if the child is living with him or spending time with him, the child's going to witness more domestic violence, and that's going to prevent avoiding the harm that's already been done, and it's going to multiply the harm that's already been created. And it's hard to imagine anything a court could do that would be worse. Yes. There's a case, Barry, that I uh, ran across a a few years ago here in Washington State, and I have tried to find. They must have settled because I'm not finding any documentation on how it was how it was actually settled. But the case was a young uh, a mother uh, went to court and said that the husband she was divorcing was sexually abusing her child. Um, the court rejected her um, complaints and, in fact, awarded custody to the father who lived with his father. And when that child turned 18. She sued everything from the judge to the the GAL, the guardian ad litem, to um, uh, anyone she could, because basically she was then sexually abused for the rest of her life until she turned 18. And I was so, uh, you know, to see that that child actually, as an adult, demanded some accountability uh, for that decision was just a, a, a thrill to me. Um, that uh, you know that that she could stand up, but I never heard the disposition of that that lawsuit. So I'm assuming in many states, guardians ad litem and judges are held harmless from from the decisions that they make. In other words, you can't go back and sue them if they made a bad decision. Um, so I don't know whether that was the case or what. But the idea that a, a child survivor placed in that situation by the court would um, come forward. Yeah, it, it was very, um, it was poignant, and it also uh, just spoke to me about how courts need to be more responsive. Have you heard of that that case, Barry, by any chance? Uh, I haven't heard of that case specifically. Um, I have heard of cases where um, young adults um, who, who were children of the courts have sued and some have collected um, it may well be that the reason we didn't hear of it is that there was some settlement that included an agreement of confidentiality. Um, mm. I think in this context we should mention um, there was an interesting settlement in a case in the D.C. area um, where Hera McLeod um, had originally obtained supervised visitation um, for a dangerous abuser who was uh, suspect in two murders and 
abused the mother and had a really horrific history. And as often happens in these cases, the courts can't wait to allow the father to have a so-called normal relationship with the child. So after a couple of months, the court allowed the father to have unsupervised visitation, and he's now going to be on trial for murder of the child, whose name is uh, Prince McLeod Rams. And just recently, there was a news article in the Washington Post that the mother settled a lawsuit against the evaluator um, for more than half a million dollars. Good. <laughs> Good. It seems like we're, uh, when money is involved, people uh, tend to react and, and um, get get some remedies uh, faster. Um, I may be jaded, but that's my experience, that if money is involved, then they'll actually try to do something about the situation. Um, these, It seems to me that courts jump over backwards, trying to make sure that abusers have the, the, the uh, accessibility to their children. And what you were talking about with the ACE is very encouraging to me because it would require the courts to say, okay, wait a minute, maybe fathers do have rights. Maybe parents have rights, but those are not superseded by the safety of the child. Um, right. So, you know, that's that's very encouraging to me um, because I, I, I believe children should have two wonderful, loving parents and have a relationship with both of them. But if one of those parents is harming them, then no. Um, <laughs> you know, it seems to me that it's only logic that you want to get that child away from that parent. So um, that that's a very encouraging thing. So let's use that information, and how does that information apply to the Quincy Solution? Well, the Quincy Solution is a broader plan. Um, it's based on the original practices in in communities like Quincy, Nashville, and San Diego, where they used a group of best practices to dramatically reduce domestic violence, especially murder. Um, and those practices were strict enforcement of criminal laws, orders of protection, and probation conditions. It included practices that made it easier for victims to leave, and it included a coordinated community response. Now, what I have done, I have added um, the use of current research, which often can inform practices in a positive way, the use of new technologies like GPS, and we've included the custody court system through the Safe Child Act. And those are essentially the practices that we want to encourage, and because of the success in some communities, and there are other communities that have used similar kinds of practices and had good results, um, in Quincy, a county that had averaged five or six murders every year, they enjoyed several years with no murders. So we know that these practices will work. And so that's the Quincy solution, and we know that that will work. Uh, when I was doing the research, I, I originally did it for um, a book I was working on that was basically – 
by and for professionals. But then something happened that in my mind changes the world. And that's when I was exposed to the ACE research. And more particularly, I, was, I saw a link um, to a study by the Academy on violence and abuse that found that in the United States, we are spending $750 billion a year, that's billion with a B, on health care costs related to domestic violence. And that's when I got excited because I realized that if we use the best practices from Quincy, we were going to dramatically reduce the health care costs, not to mention the human benefit of not going through all those illnesses, um, and that that financial saving is going to be the incentive for public officials to adopt practices to protect women and children that they should have done anyway, but now they have a financial incentive for doing it. And it also means that a lot of um, people and organizations, like businesses, for instance, like unions, for instance, that had not been involved in the issue of domestic violence suddenly have a huge incentive to get involved. Why, why would you say unions? Two things. One is that union members now have to pay a significant amount of money for their health care, and the Quincy solution would significantly reduce that. In addition, their employers have to pay a significant amount of money for health insurance. If they don't have to spend that money on health insurance, they can spend it on higher wages. Um, the other side of it is specific union members, like take police officers, the most dangerous call they get, about a quarter of their calls, are domestic violence cases. That's where police officers get killed. So if we can reduce domestic violence, we're going to make their job safer. Take teachers. Inevitably, their students are at home where they witness domestic violence and they're directly abused, and they come to school and they act out. And teachers and, and principals, and they have to respond to that. So we're going to make their job easier and get them more money for doing their job. So I think there's a strong interest for union members to be involved. Um, and okay. this is going to improve the entire economy. And, and one of the things we've talked about is Women and children and even abusers often do not reach their economic potential because of domestic violence. And, you know, most of them would just have gone to work, earned a living, contributed to the economy. Some of them might have created new businesses, a few maybe whole new industries. But all of that potential is lost because of domestic violence. So when we have all of that adding to our economy, everybody's going to be wealthier. Yeah. Um, let me give out our phone number again, Barry. This is so interesting to me. If you would like to join our conversation, um, if you've heard of the Quincy Method or if you have not, um, or the Quincy Solution, rather, uh, give us a phone call, 646-378-0433.
646-378-0430. Okay, so let's talk specifically. What is the Quincy solution? What does it involve? Um, essentially, this can be done in a community like a county, in a state, nationally, and it can be used in other countries, too. And essentially what we are asking is that the community come together to put the Quincy solution in place. Um, that means the prosecutors and the police have to um, use the best practices. Um, police would be gathering evidence, working to um, bring criminal charges on domestic violence cases, taking it seriously. Um, the prosecutor um, has to avoid some of the bad practices. Think about what happened in the Ray Rice case where he punched his, his now wife so hard as to knock her unconscious, and the prosecutor in Atlanta County allowed him to plea bargain something so there's no record, so there's no penalty. He goes for counseling, which doesn't change his behavior. And when he was criticized for not taking domestic violence seriously, he said, well, we do the same thing for everybody. And somehow that wasn't comforting. Um, <laughs> so we need prosecutors who will take this seriously. Because, you know, certainly we have too many people in jail here. But what happened in Quincy is that the local paper, the Patriot Ledger, would post pictures of men who had warrants out for their arrest. The Boston Globe did many stories covering the Quincy uh, model at that time, and the 60 Minutes did a story about it. The result was that men in the Quincy area learned they can no longer get away with these kinds of crimes. So they stopped. Because if men don't do this because of mental illness, because of substance abuse, because they can't control their behavior. They do it because there's a long history of getting away with it, and they, they find that the benefit in controlling their partner is greater than any, uh, the very small risk of very limited consequences. The Quincy solution changes that, and so what will happen is that men in the community will stop committing these crimes, and we have all sorts of benefits because the crimes are no longer committed. So, you know, nationally, remember that the federal government can't impose this. They, what I would really love to have is a White House conference about the Quincy solution and how to change things. Um, they can give grants to communities that want to implement um, the Quincy solution. We can also provide research, as the Justice Department has been doing, that would support this. Uh, similarly, states could create um, grants for communities uh, starting the Quincy Solution, um, and they can pass the Safe Child Act. Um, we've, uh, as part of the Stop Abuse Campaign, uh, we have been working in Erie County, which is like Buffalo, New York, and they had a series of child murders, and we started meeting with the county executive and DV agencies, and we're trying to put together a Quincy solution in Erie County 
because that's the way to stop children from being murdered. And so that creates a big incentive. Unfortunately, we keep hearing all of these tragic cases. And what hurts even more now, Heather, we know how to stop this. These tragedies could be avoided if we adopt the Quincy solution. And hopefully as soon as we start getting some communities doing that and other communities see the benefits, then I think it's going to spread rapidly. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, one of the things that I just picked up from what you said is there are few consequences for domestic violence. Um, Really. I mean, there are very few consequences for an abuser. But with what you were saying about the community rejecting abusers, the community um, response of, of publishing their pictures and their names. And, um, you know, it seems to me that that would be a huge incentive in and of itself for people to not abuse. You know, uh, uh, it is so ingrained that it would take something really substantial, I think, to get people, uh, get men uh, moved away from from, uh, using uh, domestic violence as a way to operate their lives. But when you're talking about public uh, exposure like that, I mean, I think they've, haven't they done similar type things with uh, uh, prostitution, where they've published pictures of or listed names and papers of men arrested for prostitution um, uh, purchasing? I don't yeah. know what the correct terminology is. Um, so in, in a way, that's kind of a public shaming, is it not? Yes, and, and I think what's really important, we talked before about research, And the research is now very clear. The only thing that changes abusers' behavior is accountability and monitoring. And that's exactly what what Quincy did. And they didn't have the research then, but Bill Delahunt and um, the other leaders really figured it out, and they were white. And, you know, think about, again, the prosecutor in Atlanta County who was doing something that many other prosecutors commonly do, um, what they're talking about is a first offense. And they're thinking that if they are lenient, if they give them an out the first time, that somehow that's going to change behavior. And it fundamentally shows a lack of understanding of what domestic violence is. You can be sure that the first time Ray Weiss abused his partner, and even the first time he illegally abused his partner, he didn't knock her unconscious. You can be guaranteed that he committed many other criminal acts and probably hundreds of more um, legal domestic violence tactics. And finally, his abuse came to the attention of the authorities. And this was their opportunity to intervene and to make a difference. And instead, they gave him leniency. And so what has been happening in his case and all sorts of other cases is that the abuser tells their victim, no one will take it seriously, they won't believe you, I'll get away with it. Ray Rice would say, I'm a celebrity, I can get out of it. And what happened? Exactly what he predicted occurred which means yes. that you know his victim you know will be punished f- 
for having made it, you know, because it was reported. Obviously, she didn't make the report herself. And nothing, no benefit occurred. He, he, he didn't get any kind of penalty. So she's not going to report it again. Now, right. the criminal justice system, you know, they measure their success on whether someone's rearrested. So if she doesn't complain again because she saw she didn't get any benefit and, in fact, it was risky, so the criminal justice system thinks they did something well while she's suffering in, in silence. And so yes. this, this idea of focusing on leniency, focusing on counseling or batterer programs, um, substance abuse, those are not effective. We know what's effective. It's monitoring and accountability. And, you know, what they did in the Ray Rice case, what they did in Adrian Peterson case, are really the opposite of accountability. And, and that's going to be a big part of what needs to change with the Quincy Solution. Okay, so... You, you've mentioned that Quincy Solution involves uh, a community response. It involves a um, uh, accountability. We're calling the abusers for uh, on accountability. Um, what else? What else does it have anything to do with how the with the arrest, with the uh, prosecution, with the, what? What else does it involve besides? Because to me, yeah, okay, requiring more accountability from the offender seems. Well, like it, logic, it starts. It starts with the police response. They have to aggressively um, investigate, gather evidence, bring charges. They need to prepare a case based on the idea that the victim will not testify, because very frequently she doesn't for a variety of reasons. One of the very common reasons is witness tampering, which is extremely common in domestic violence cases and really needs to be prosecuted much more aggressively. Um, so they have to gather the evidence, and then it needs to be prosecuted to the fullest extent possible. And, you know, I think that the officials who are doing these things, you know, should encourage publicity so that everybody knows, you know, this is what's going to happen. Because the best way to respond to domestic violence is to prevent it from happening in the first place. Um, another very important part was to make it easier for the victim to leave her abuser. Um, and, you know, what they would do in Quincy, they would have advocates who would help um, her go through the um, process of making a complaint, of uh, seeking a protective order. Um, they would explain what the court procedures would be like. They would help them filling out forms. Um, the prosecutor uh, would help on housing, on, you know, sometimes the police would come come with her to court and all that to, to protect her. Um, so they did a variety of things to make it easier for the victim to leave, and contrast that with what the custody courts are doing, which are making it harder for the victim to leave. What the custody courts are doing is saying you have to interact with your uh, abuser so that instead of 
pressuring the abuser to stop his abuse if he wants a relationship with the children. They're pressuring the victim to interact with him. And if she is reluctant to do that or doesn't want to expose the children to someone she has seen as dangerous, the courts are very quick to punish her. And all of that makes it harder for her to leave her abuser. Um, So helping victims to leave is a really important part of this and, and something that's often overlooked. Yes. Well, and I think any woman who has uh, tried to leave an abuser or go through the, the divorce system to get away from an abuser and to have to face that whole child custody issue um, if you're with the abuser and the children, you have a chance to protect them. If exactly. you go through the, the split up, then chances are very great that those children are going to have to see that abuser and do it without you as a buffer. And I think that it is, uh, I, I, it, it's absolutely logical for a woman to want to stay and protect her children, no matter what the cost. So people who don't understand that are the ones who say, well, why doesn't she just leave? You know, she must like this, blah, blah, blah. Um, because you, it's just impossible to help a child or to protect a child, even minimally, if you're not anywhere in the vicinity of that child. Um, so it's absolutely logical that um, the, the process um, and the, the assumption that a father should have contact with his child, um, it's absolutely logical that um, the Quincy solution could do something to eliminate that as a possibility. But what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me. I'm thinking of the judges and guardians ad litem that I've spoken to who would um, contend that they are helping the victim, that they are helping um, by doing what they're doing, when in fact, in a lot of cases, they are not. So how do you convince or train or educate um, these decision makers that there's a better way? Well, one of the things I try to say very directly and clearly is that children do not need both parents equally. They need the primary attachment figure more than the other parent. They need the safe parent more than the abusive one. Um, You know, one of the problems is that the court system has been using really flawed practices for more than a generation so that virtually all lawyers and judges have been getting misinformation their entire career and it's now deeply ingrained. In addition to that, um, many of them are very defensive about criticism of their system. And one of the things I've been trying to do, and particularly focused on the ACE research and the Saunders study, is to say we, have, we now have this new research that shows that a lot of the standard practices work poorly for children. Can you be open to listening to this research? And hopefully that can say, we're not saying you're bad people who have been hurting children deliberately for all this time, but now that we have this research, can you at least be open and change practices that we now know are a mistake? And, and hopefully we can say this in a way that they can hear it more. And, and I know so many of my friends who are protective mothers are so frustrated and angry, and, and rightfully so, 
at the way they and their children have been mistreated. But we also have to find a way to discuss this um, so that the court system can be open to it. You know, Heather, maybe sometime you should have a judge on with me and we can talk directly about <laughs> Well, I know you will be shocked to hear this, Barry, but judges are reluctant to come on the show. <laughs> I mean, I go figure. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> but I think you're right about that whole defensiveness. Um, they they have their methodology that they've been taught, presumably, and that they think is, is perfectly fine. And to be criticized for using that... Um, it's it would be tough for any of us, I'm sure, to be doing what we think is right and then being told how, no, actually, what you're doing is harmful. Um, I, I can understand how judges, being human beings, might reject that and, and feel, you know, that they're they're put upon. Nevertheless, um, it's it's true. Um, my one of the inquiries that I had uh, several years ago was, um, okay, so why can't we require judges? to have training and and take their lawyers are required, required to have continuing education so why can't we just require that some of those um continuing education units be in domestic violence and i was told that and i have no clue whether this is accurate or not but i was told that um judges that the the state legislature they were always always reluctant to put any kind of restrictions on judges um because they want judges to just go on, and I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, but they they contended, uh, to me anyway, they said that they would not be able to put those kind of specific regulations on a judge. Does that make well, sense to you? Well, it doesn't make sense, and I, I don't think that that's the problem. I, I think that most judges, especially judges who are going to be handling DV cases over a lengthy period of time will be required and will, in fact, get domestic violence training. But there are two potential problems with that. One is that some of the training is done by people who don't understand domestic violence. And so you might even have parental alienation syndrome as part of the training for judges. Yes, the other part I've of it that. is that judges often think they know all this and so they don't pay much attention, and you really can't force them to do that. Um, you know, one of the things I found interesting when we were talking before, um, I talked to you about a um, uh, meeting that I had sponsored by the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges and the Office for Violence Against Women. And I had an opportunity to speak with um, a judge from Colorado where they had passed a new law that required courts to focus more on the safety of children. And one of the benefits was that the judges realized that the system had just been changed, and so they wanted more training so they could understand how to implement the new law. And it's one of the reasons I believe that if we can pass the Safe Child Act, that that too will fundamentally change the law and the approach and that may encourage um, many judges to not only go for training but to pay attention to it. And I think that the Saunders study and the ACE research will be very compelling um, when they hear it. 
Um, you know, I think another problem is that a lot of times judges only want to hear from other judges, lawyers from lawyers, psychologists from psychologists, and we need a more multidisciplinary approach. And for domestic violence, we need they need to hear from domestic violence advocates and other experts. And, you know, having a mental health degree does not make you an expert in domestic violence. I know a law degree doesn't. You know, you you get a mental health degree, you get a law degree, and you've had basically no training in domestic violence. And so exactly. using a multi using a multidisciplinary approach would work much better. And and I think that's a reasonable thing to say. Yes. Well, and I think we have to be really careful. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not a big one on bureaucracy, but when it comes to domestic violence training, I think there should be some sort of certification process because there are so many people out there who are passing themselves off as domestic violence experts who do not rely on the latest research, who do not rely on uh, a- accurate information or they skew the information. Um, so just because uh, an attorney, for example, might be required to have um, uh, domestic violence training doesn't mean that that training is accurate, good, or useful. Um, so I think it, it has to be, um, you know, that it, it, it's a two-part thing where you not only have to provide this for, for folks, but you also have to make sure that it's accurate, good, and uh, up-to-the-minute and helpful information that we're giving to the judges and the lawyers and the, you know, the the butchers and bakers and candlestick makers. Is there any way that a judge can be, uh, if a say if a judge or an attorney wants to learn more about domestic violence, where do they go? Where would they go to be absolutely certain that their information that they're going to be getting is accurate and not skewed one way or the other? Well, I mean, I would I would go to DV agencies like the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and I would go yes. to the local DV shelter and people like that, um, and, and I think it would be really helpful. I mean, we did the last NCADV conference. We had a child custody, um, like uh, almost an all-day program. It was like six hours with some of the absolute best people in the country. Um you know, any judge who went to that would would be really in, in much better shape to protect children. Um, that was a really good um, discussion. Um, you know, I think one of the things we need to think about, um, I did some presentations for the American Psychological Association at their national conference, and the final one, um, I did a presentation with uh, Dr. Joy Silberg, Dr. Mohanna, and uh, Dr. Julie Ansis. And what was interesting about each of them is these are psychologists who um, probably have each done at least a thousand hours of training or are very knowledgeable about current research. And these are women who are psychologists who are also experts in domestic violence. Um, what we have in the courts, and this is true of judges, lawyers, and mental health professionals, is that they will go for a few workshops, and maybe they have several hours of training, and that's good. It will help them understand what questions to ask, but doesn't make them expert. And the difference is huge. And so what we need is for court professionals to get into the habit of consulting with domestic violence um, advocates and other experts, 
because that's where they're going to get the expertise that they need. And again, that's part of a multidisciplinary approach that would benefit children. Well, Barry, if somebody wanted to become more involved in uh, learning about the Quincy Solution or advocating for the Quincy Solution, where would they go? Um, now, that's the question I wanted to hear. Um, first of all, um, the Stop Abuse Campaign, um, which is stopabusecampaign.org, I believe. Um, I'm sorry, .com. Um, they are leading the campaign and we are working with the NCADV also. So go to the website of the Stop Abuse Campaign. You can also look up my website, which is barrygoldstein.net, um, for information. Um, at the Stop Abuse Campaign, you can read a lot of articles and information. You can get on the mailing list. You can volunteer to help us. We need help. You can donate. Um, you can work in your community, and we can give you the resources. You can get my book if you'd like. Um, so there's a lot of good things you can do to help um, end domestic violence, um, and I would encourage your listeners to get involved with the Stop Abuse Campaign, and we, were, we are putting together a coalition of organizations and individuals who um, are trying to end domestic violence. Terrific. Um, so, one, real quickly, the name of your latest book, The Quincy Solution? Yes, The Quincy Solution, Stop Domestic Violence and Save $500 Billion. Available on Amazon or go to barrygoldstein.net to get more information about that. Um, Barry, I think that we've uh, I think we've solved domestic violence here in this last half hour, 45 minutes, don't you? Well, I, I hope don't so. Think <laughs> it's always such a pleasure to speak with you, Barry. Um, one thing that I'd like to throw out is, um, you know, this is the time of the season where many of us are looking for gifts for people. Gifts don't have to be things that you hold in your hand, like a book, although they make good good gifts. But you can also make a donation to um, something like the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, or there are a number, go, go to uh, stopabuse.org. Um, com, and uh, there are a number of organizations that you might want to just send that ten, twenty, thirty bucks to, in the name of someone else for for the the Christmas present. I tend to do that, and when my children were little, they kind of went, uh huh. <laughs> now that they're adults, they they get it a little bit better. <laughs> so uh, think about that. Think about um, uh, using your holiday generosity to help support organizations that are uh, doing some really good work in the area of violence. Because domestic violence is huge in our country, absolutely huge. I often try to end our shows with a quote. Sometimes I'm not successful. Today I found a quote from a very famous person, Barry Goldstein, who said, oh, Society has the knowledge and ability to prevent a large majority of domestic violence crimes and especially murders. It's not, it is not like cancer or heart disease, which would require some fundamental changes in human behavior to achieve massive reductions. And I think if you read Barry's book on uh, the Quincy Solution, you will understand that. We can end this. We can absolutely do that. Barry, thank you so much 
for uh, being a guest here, and I hope you will come again. Um, I would like to, uh, again, refer everybody to Barry's book, The Quincy Solution, available on Amazon, and uh, also to StopAbuse.com. Join us next week for a show. I'm, I'm trying, actually, to get an FBI representative on the show, so we'll see if that works out. And uh, remember that you can go to our website, www.blogtalk.com radio.com slash three women three ways and those are the digits three to hear any of our previous programs on the archive so join us next week thank you very much for joining us this week I really appreciate your being here and I appreciate you Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.